Well, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm excited that you're here. My name's Danny. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors at Kesset, and I'm going to be sharing with you today. Um, thank you so much if this is your first time for being willing to check church out. I know for a lot of people, um, this can be a messy space. We recognize that, and uh, we, uh, we appreciate it and invite all the conversation that comes with it. Uh, we are launching a brand new series today called Oaks from Ashes, and I'm going to explain that to you. Um, I, I often, my team knows that uh, I don't enjoy intros. I, I, don't, I don't like them very much uh, because a lot of times it feels like I'm trying to sell something and I, it's the last thing that I want to do up here is sell you on why you should be a part of this coming series. But, uh, but I will say that uh, this series is a response to uh, a lot of the stuff that happened during the shame series that we just finished up. And uh, our church just kind of kind of got tore open in some really beautiful ways. And at first, what I wanted to do was respond uh, with quality leadership that was a series about making sure I could help you put all that stuff back inside, sew it up neat, and uh, maybe disinfect, and then move on and do something really, really fun and joyful and, and pretty much just move past all of that, all of that stuff. But uh, the emails won't stop, if I'm being honest. Uh, because shame cycles, and if anything that we've, that we've agreed as a church, it's that you can kind of get through some stuff, but now that you know it's there and you've got some tools, it's going to come back. And so we, we need to continue to talk about how to respond to that. And so I met with the team. We had a whole summer series planned, and I said, I'm not feeling this at all. And a, a few of the pastors were like, yeah, me either. And so we just scrapped all the summer plans, and we started praying about uh, what it is that we wanted to, to, to do and who we wanted to be as a church. And this series just came together in, uh, in actually the matter of hours, uh, which had, doesn't happen because we had a summer plan since end of last year. But uh, this series, I think, is a beautiful response to what the Holy Spirit's doing in this room. Now, whether you were a part of the shame series or you're a brand new guest, that doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit has a really beautiful way of just meeting people right where they are. But I believe this, this is going to be um, a summer that we go back and remember. For those of you who helped plant Kesset, do you remember when we were at Endeavor and we were in the gym with the blue floor? And we used to talk about how we'll remember and we'll tell people, like, well, I was there when, when we had the blue floor. Uh, this, I think, is going to be something kind of like that, that, that we're going to go, I was there when we did Oaks from Ashes, and people are going to go, oh. And uh, I think it's going to be really powerful and really beautiful. So uh, that's the only sell you're going to get. That's it. Because uh, I want to teach you a little bit more about what the series is actually about. Um, Oaks from Ashes is going to be a teaching series around the spiritual concept of abiding. Uh, there's a lot of different working definitions of abiding. This is the one we're going to use. To abide is to live, continue, or remain. To abide in Christ is to live in him or remain in him. Uh, when a person is saved, which is very Christian lingo for when a person comes to Jesus, he or she is described throughout the Bible as being in Christ. That's how we talk about a person that, that has been saved. A couple of verses, Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This means that basically they are held in secure, permanent relationship when they are in Christ, when they are saved. Uh, in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus is talking about this permanent relationship, and he kind of doubles down on, on the value of it when he says, 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And so we have this idea as Christians of of coming into relationship with God in a way that, that is permanent and steadfast. And so in some ways you could say to abide is to know and be known. Because it is not just you proclaiming Jesus as your savior. It is him saying, I will save you. And this relationship is supposed to be something that is so transformative that the very person that was before the saving is no longer. And there is a new creation, as the Bible says. There is something that that happens when we as Christ's followers abide in him internally. Therefore, abiding in Christ is not some sort of uh, higher level of, of Christendom or experience. Rather, it's the position of every single true believer when they accept Jesus. As a matter of fact, the difference between those Christians who uh, are saved and unsaved is that some are abiding and the unsaved, we would say, would not. So the question then has to be asked, how's your abiding going? Because it's supposed to be for all of us, right? It's supposed to be a thing that if you've accepted Christ. Now, I recognize real quick in a room like this and with as many people watching as we, as we have, uh, there are people who are just spiritually curious who you would be like, I don't even know if I believe there is a God. As a matter of fact, I know for a fact we have people that volunteer uh, to help out around here who are part of their family. And, and there's members of their family who volunteer here who don't believe in God. They've told me like, I just don't know about this God thing, but I really like the church. And I'm like, all right. Because, you know, I do know about this God thing, and I think there's a reason you like the church, and I'll just, that's fine, right? I mean, we'll take you. So, so I'm, not, I'm not talking about everybody who is, is spiritually curious and on a journey around this, but those of us who've accepted Christ, how's that abiding going? How's that daily walk? How's that daily bread, as we say, as we commune with God? Because I think if we were honest about it, we would all recognize that there's days when it's great and there are days when it feels like God is non-existent. Now, I realize that someone like me with my profession needs to be careful when he says there's days that he doesn't feel God. So I'll just say it as carefully as I can. There are days that I don't feel God. (laughs) This is articulate as I can put it out there for you. There are days when I pray and I just feel like it just falls flat. There are days when I seek him and I, I feel like although the Bible says you will find him, that I, that I just don't. There are, there, are, there are parts of the relationship that, that I struggle with. And the more and more that I think about it, the more and more I believe it has to do with my own ability to abide with him. When my wife and I were first dating, uh, our relationship was full of only wanting to be in each other's presence, only wanting to abide with one another. As a matter of fact, in the first three months that my wife and I dated, I had a job uh, across the river that I had to drive to very early, and then I would get off, and then I would go spend the, basically the rest of my entire day up until two, three in the morning on a regular basis. Uh, and I did that for about three weeks until I fell asleep at 60 miles an hour driving home from her house one day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a good experience for me. I, I fell asleep and I woke up and there were wet branches uh, slapping the windshield of my car. And so I'll never forget, I, was, I had music on and I had the windows cracked and I turned my wheel figuring I need to get back on the road and the car turned around sideways and started going backwards through the woods. 
with branches slapping the back of my, and then it went, and then I prayed. I prayed to God like you do in those situations. And I said, God, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. That's all I prayed. And then I flew off a cliff. It's a true story. I'm not just making this up for fun. If I have youth students in here, they know this story from the youth days. I flew off a cliff and I actually thought that I had stopped. So I was like, yes. And then I heard air coming through my, my windows. And that's when I smashed into a tree at the bottom of the cliff. And then I flew out my car and then I rolled into some berry bushes. And I think I fell asleep for a couple hours because I was really, really tired after that accident. <laughs> when I was done, uh, my, I, I, I crawled up the ravine to the top. And the very first car that passed was a state patrolman. Very first car. And he passed me. And I had had a few driving tickets and accidents at this time. Um, and so I just was started whistling, right, as I was walking, like no big deal. And he pulls up and he puts a spotlight on me and he says, what happened? And I said, nothing, there's nothing going on. <laughs> and he goes, where'd your shoes go? And I looked down and realized that I, my shoes had blown off my feet and I was just in socks and I had like berry bushes in my hair. And he goes, uh, he goes you, got a, you got a bit of a cut there on the side of your face. And I was like, I do. And I had a little blood. And he goes, more importantly, is there anybody else in the car? And I said, what car? And I, I've never got to go meet this gentleman, but I'll never forget it was a foggy, rainy day. And he took me by the shoulders and he turned me around. And I had forgot to turn off my headlights and they were shining straight up <laughs> into the trees. And he goes, that car. And I said, no, no, there's no one in the car. And so they called an ambulance and strapped me in and... He, he, they tested me and he goes, man, you're not drunk. You're not high. You're not anything. What happened? And I go, I dated a girl and I haven't been sleeping. And he stuffed a ticket into my neck brace. And he goes, you should probably work on that. <laughs> it's the cost of love, folks. It's the cost of love. I, won't, I, 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 I remember during, I think it was the first week that uh, my wife and I were dating. She introduced me to her, her parents who I had known from junior high earlier and she showed me around her house and then she's like, oh, and this is my room. And she went to push in the door to her room but it wouldn't push in and she was like, kind of looked at me and I was like, it's, you okay? And she goes, oh, I, I think I might have some laundry down and that's why the door won't open well. And I was like, oh, I'll help. And so I had to help her push the door open to then see that there was like 10 inches of laundry covering the entire room. And do you know what I thought in my head? doesn't matter. She's perfect. I don't care at all. And I thought I could fix that. <laughs> Can I get a set of hands of somebody you're married to? You thought I could fix that. And, and you know now, right? You're like, Ugh. I, 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 so, you know, still haven't fixed it. Been 24 years, still haven't fixed it. And actually it's only gotten worse. I'm a very tidy person. My wife is, uh, is, is not a very tidy person. And the other day, I think this just happened last week, uh, we were going to bed and we got into bed and my wife sleeps with her hair unbound, I guess. There's nothing in it when she sleeps. And so she had a bun in and so we were just about to turn off the lamps and she takes out the bun, uh, the scrunchie, and she looks at me and she just throws it over her head. <laughs> this just happened last week. This is real time marriage strife, people. And I looked at her and I was like, what, what just happened? And she goes, oh, I... I, I throw it over my head because I don't know where it lands. And then it's kind of like fun in the morning where I'm going to find it. <laughs> and I said, that is terrible. That is terrible. This is a core, this is a core concern that you need to address in your life. And I said, well, where does it usually land? And she goes, well, I aim for the nightstand, but sometimes it's behind the headboard. And sometimes I find it on the floor or, or sometimes it's still in bed with me. You just don't know. 
And I was like, Aaron, that is, that is not good. Like, like if, I, if I wore scrunchies, I would have a little scrunchie holder next to it, color-coded. <laughs> I would put them on there, right? All my scrunchies, not my wife. And so the, the next morning, I got up, and just to prove a point, I went on a scrunchie scavenger hunt uh, along her side of the bed. And within three minutes, I found five scrunchies, three headbands, and th- two or three uh, uh, rubber bands for hair, and like bobby pins. Just, just a, like a, just a collection of, of things. And I showed her and she was proud. She was like, mm-hmm, yeah, thank you. I was wondering where all that was. <laughs> the thing is that, that I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there, there are seasons when you abide and, and the 10 inches of laundry in the floor, you're like, ah, doesn't really matter. And then there are seasons where like just the scrunchie being thrown is like, is like soul scraping. And I think sometimes that's exactly how it is with God. There are seasons when we're like, man, I just want to minister to the lady at Safeway who's, who's helping me with groceries. I'm like, ma'am, God loves you and you're important. And I got a coupon for that. And God thinks you're so valuable, right? And we just are in it. And then there's seasons where we walk by people who are clearly like, I just feel like I need Jesus. And you're like, yeah, yeah, Kesson has a nine and an 11, right? And we just... We just don't, we, we don't always match up with what we experience. And I think it has a lot to do with how we abide. There are seasons I abide well with Aaron. And there are seasons that I do not abide well with Aaron. And I believe that that is what this scripture is constantly calling us to evaluate. How well are we abiding? What are the areas? Because it's often not just an entire season of every area of your life. It's usually an area within a season that, that you found something else to cope with, something else that numbs, something else that, that, that allows you not to address that thing in your life that God is often calling you to. And usually you're not abiding in the very area you're supposed to be abiding the most in. And so you, you fill your schedule top to bottom, and God's like, I just want to spend some time with you. And you're like, God, I'm just so busy. And he's like, I know, but we have some stuff to talk about because the path you're on is getting dangerous. And you're like, God, I would love to hear your warnings, but I'm just too busy doing good stuff for you. This happens all the time throughout Scripture, story after story after story, where people will, will actually leverage their strengths and their talents. It happens a lot in ministry. There's a whole lot of documentaries out there right now of churches full of people who somewhere along the way started abiding, not in God, but in the production of whatever this is. And this doesn't change people's lives. This is, this is an empty, you know, vase. It is only God's presence within it that actually brings nutrients, transformative healing and love. This is just a building with four walls, some lights and a guy barely making it on stage doing the best he can to try to remind you how invaluable he actually is to the process of experiencing who God is. That's what I think church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be people bringing their their giftings as offerings to God, but too often we don't abide in relationship with, with God. We instead abide in the person with the giftings. And then we start telling people about our pastors instead of our God. So I just, we'll just snuff this out real quick in this service. This is only happening in this service, so I don't know who needs this. But don't tell people about Kessid teaching or Kessid worship or, or really Kessid anything. Tell people about Jesus. Right. Just tell people about Jesus. Yeah. Because if we can tell people about Jesus, this whole thing will last beyond us. Because that's who we're supposed to be abiding in. 
That's where we're supposed to be going next. So the question becomes this. How do we abide in every area of our life consistently? How do we abide well? I want to look at that person we just talked about, Jesus. Before Jesus started his ministry, he was a 30-year-old carpenter raised by a carpenter. He was still very much God, but no one really knew that, just a few people very close to him. And so if you had met Jesus, he probably would have been carrying a table into your house and giving you a genuine smile. He probably would have asked some really great questions, and you would have thought, he's a really nice boy. And you would have definitely tried to set him up with your daughter. No one ever thinks about that. Anybody ever think about how many times Jesus was set up with somebody's daughter? Like how many, how many times did Jesus like, oh, Jesus again? You know, it's like, Jesus, here she is. It's just little, little things we don't process. But Jesus would have been that guy. And then it says, one day the Spirit of God calls Jesus out into the desert. He's got a comfortable life. He's got all the strengths. He's being set up with everybody's daughter. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's like, I need you to come with me. And so Jesus goes out into the desert. Luke chapter 4 tells the story if you want to read it. But within the story, if I was to paraphrase it, the, the enemy, the devil, meets Jesus in this place. And then he tests him. He tests him for 40 days and 40 nights while Jesus is wandering around in the desert. And he gives him three primary tests. The first one is the lust of the flesh. Jesus was tempted to depend on his own independent provision of food rather than rely on God. His, his, his nature, that, that the desire to keep his body functioning was put to the test. The next one was the lust of the eyes. It was the temptation to abuse his power for his own benefit. To, to basically make sure that everybody around him could see him for who he really was. Not just the guy that, that you want to marry your daughter or who can make a decent table, but the creator of all. The next one's the pride of life. Jesus was tempted to secure an earthly crown and bypass the suffering and sacrifice he would endure on the cross. He was, he was given a get-out-of-jail-free card option. While he's wandering around in the desert, Symbolically, if you will, reliving the, the Jewish people's escape from uh, Babylon or uh, Egypt when Moses led them into the desert and they wandered around for 40 years and failed every single test that they were given. Jesus goes and relives this, passes them all. Over and over, Jesus is tempted to choose something else other than God as his source and strength, but he doesn't. He continues to abide. In every single situation and circumstance, he abides with his father. He embraces his own weakness in order to embrace total reliance on God. The writer of Hebrews refers to this uh, chapter four when he says, since then we have a great high priest who has through the heavens, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This time of choosing to abide with God, even during his own weakness, makes him relatable to us, makes him connectable to us. It, it makes him different than any other uh, a false deity that's ever been presented to mankind. It's his very weakness that we are invited to embrace, 
This is what makes him the high priest, that he was tempted like we are, that he was hungry like we are, that he was thirsty like we are, and somehow still figured out a way to abide with the Father. This experience with Jesus changed everything. When he comes back out of the desert, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a person shifting into a different gear. The very next verse after Jesus comes out of the desert, after it proclaims he's passed all these tests, is this, Luke 4, 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the launch of Jesus's ministry, the desert experience, a place of abiding with God in spite of the circumstances or trials or suffering. This matters to to who Jesus is to become. And I think we need to spend time understanding why. Jesus says why. He addresses it in the very next passage following the one we just read in 14 and 15. Look at verse 16. And it says he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, specifically chapter 61. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he read a portion of this very old prophecy. This is that portion. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says he looked around, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and then sat down. And then he just stared at everybody. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and everything broke loose. They started attacking. They started blaming. They started saying, you can't do that. But one thing we don't often realize that they would have asked is, why didn't you read the rest of the passage? You see, Jesus read a specific part of that prophecy. And it was a part that had to do with his ministry on earth during his time, the ministry he was just about to launch officially from his desert experience. And his ministry would do what? It would proclaim good news to the poor. It would proclaim liberty to the captives. It would proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, spiritually speaking, especially. And it would set at liberty those who were oppressed in order to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus is proclaiming. This is what he is announcing to the world. From his time of abiding in the desert, from his time of embracing weakness, he then steps forward and says, all right, this is what I'm here to do. He defines his purpose publicly. Now here's where you and I come in. Part of what makes the entire story so powerful is where Jesus chooses to stop reading the scroll. This is supposed to be read as a complete chapter. This would be like if if I invited you over for a movie night and I started the movie 20 minutes in and then about 20 more minutes in, I paused it and said, man, I really appreciate appreciate you guys being here. I hope you had as much fun as I did and uh, we'll see you next week. He He doesn't finish the rest of the chapter and there's a very specific reason why. 
Here's the very next part of the chapter in Isaiah chapter 61. And we'll pick up right at the, uh, the, the last phrase to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the passage continues. This is what Jesus didn't read. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them, listen really carefully, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And do you know what these people who receive this beautiful blessing will do? They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The reason that Jesus stops reading where he does is because the next part of the passage in Isaiah's prophecy isn't about Jesus's ministry. It's about our response to Jesus's ministry. It's about what he does through the power of the cross for us. He exchanges ashes for beautiful headdresses. For mourning, he exchanges oil of gladness a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then this description of who we are is added, that we may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus is calling us forward to us from then. His desire to replant the garden, sin and shame has ruled for too long. And once again, walk in the cool of the night with him and so abide. That's where the title comes from. We are the generation that is supposed to be moving oaks from ashes in our life. We are the generation that is supposed to be rebuilding. We are the generation that is supposed to be meeting people inside of their mourning with oil of gladness. We are the people who are supposed to not be faint of spirit, but instead wear garments of praise. And do you know why it's so rare that this is actually happening, I believe? It's because we, although we're called to follow the person of Jesus, right? We're called to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, to follow that narrow road wherever he goes. We cannot stand sitting in weakness. We hate it. We'll avoid it at any cost. That's why so many of us walked in today with a massively difficult week, but told every single person whose hand they shook, I'm fine. How are you? And there's probably a few of you, and you do it just to be you, where you're like, not fine, terrible week. And you know what? No one knows what to do with you. They're like, oh, and they just leave, right? Because we can't stand the weakness. And yet here's the problem. We only accomplish the things in Isaiah's prophecy through following Jesus and so doing it like Jesus did it through weakness, we have to embrace weakness if we want to abide with Christ, to see what he sees, to go where he goes, to follow where he follows. But it's hard. Paul himself gets a little overzealous when he talks about this awakening that he's had about embracing weakness. And this is what he says, describing Jesus talking to him, the spirit. He said to me, 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is God talking to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. When you're weak, I'll be there. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is another definition of abide with me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. And then he just goes all in. And insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. And everybody's like, this is a lame sermon, Paul. And then he adds, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I am weak, when we are weak, the Spirit of God meets us in that place, gets all the glory, all the credit for anything that happens of beauty or health or wholeness. And God wants to sustain that because he's the only one who can sustain the people who come looking for more of it themselves. But when I appear strong, when I appear uh, in charge, when I appear uh, well strategized, then people want to follow that. When you appear that way, people want to follow that. But here's the thing. It only lasts so long. And then the Danniness falls away. And next thing you know, I'm just a guy, you know, with scrunchy wife problems. That's who I am. <laughs> I could have probably, probably articulated that better, but... But the reality is, it is Jesus that sustains, but Jesus sustains the same way he, abide, he abound with God is the same way that we are to abide with him. And that is through remaining in and embracing weakness. See, that's part of where this series is coming from. I am currently very tired. And I'm not tired because I'm working too hard. I'm not tired because... Uh, I'm not, I'm not self-disciplined enough or I don't have family life balance. That's not why I'm tired. I'm tired because I'm currently in a few areas of my life not abiding well. And I think I can say that for the rest of the team that we've talked about. And I think I can say that for many people in this room. It's not every area, right? I'm not, I'm not reverting back to old coping mechanisms. I'm not, my marriage isn't on the fritz. And this is the problem is I could probably just play the shell game, spiritually speaking, for the rest of my career. Nope, Danny's good here. Got a problem here though, but don't, oh, no, remember I, I figured that out in the last series that I taught, but I still got this problem. And I just finally, at the end of it, just through this, the last series, got to the point where I just don't want to anymore. And so I have to work on this like anybody else. As a car guy, uh, I would, to the other, I'll speak to the other car guys and gals in the room. I feel at the moment like I'm stuck in second gear, but I'm going way too fast. And so I'm redlining. For the rest of you, it's, it's just, I don't know how else to explain it to you, but <laughs> this is just a sermon for car people. So the rest of you, I, yeah, yeah I just, you just, you need to go spend some time learning how to drive a manual, okay, because that's important. But this is what it feels like. It feels like I, I need to shift. And so talking to the rest of the church staff, talking to other pastors in town, talking to our team and our families, uh, that's exactly what we're going to do at Kesset. We're going we're gonna to move through neutral and shift into another gear. Now, that said, um, I want to make sure and talk to you about what this doesn't mean, because I've been doing this long enough to know that if I leave stuff vague, you're going to fill it with your own uh, imagination around the changes that are going to happen at Kesson. So here's a few things it doesn't mean. First, that we're undergoing a change in leadership. Nope, you're stuck with us. So, so even though I get up here and I, and I, as one person said, like, sometimes you're just sort of an angsty preacher, aren't you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, but nobody's leaving, nobody's going anywhere, there's no leadership shift. Second, what it doesn't mean that we're undergoing a change in theology. No, that's not what it means. 
Uh, we're going to maintain the close-handed issues we've been preaching for the last 14 years. And the open-handed stuff, we're going to keep evaluating. We're going to be curious. We're going to sit in tension. We're all not going to agree. And at the end of the day, we're going to have conversations and go, yeah, I still, I still feel God calling me here. Because the reality is, some of you, we could have every ounce of theology perfect that you like, and God could still be calling you to another church to serve and help. And it would be disobedient for you to stay. Others of you, you don't know why God has you here. You can't stand this. <laughs> but it would be disobedient for you to leave. <laughs> Yeah, that, whoa, there's more of those people than the other people, apparently, <laughs> in our church. There's like, how many folks just don't want to be here, but God won't let them leave? You can raise your hands. It's okay. Oh, okay. You're just going to do the pretend thing and say, I'm fine. Everything's fine. All right, good. Well, it's going to, we'll, we'll talk about it more. Uh, third, what this doesn't mean, that we're undergoing a change in culture. We are remaining curious, good with tension, and generous. We're not undergoing a change in culture. Frankly, I think what it actually means is that we're, under, un, we're going to undergo a change of heart. I think that's what God's doing. I think he's expanding the heart of Kesed and the heart of people that he's brought here in order to sit in a space and, and have some conversations with him they've never had before because I'm just going to say it. They haven't been curious enough to ask if they've been reading the Bible right in the first place. They haven't been uh, willing to sit in tension around stuff they don't understand about the way God behaves and acts and says. And they're not willing to be generous with their time, with their money, with their gifts, and anything else. And frankly, they just kind of hoard everything that God has given them in order to protect themselves from the church that's too dysfunctional to deserve the gifts of God, even though he built the church in order to receive those gifts and gave them to you to give away. How weird is that? And so you're a barn builder. I got verses for you if you want, barn builders. We know the passage where the guy built enough barns and finally stood back and, and he's like, ah, finally, now I can just relax. And God shows up and is like, your soul is called of you this night. And the man is taken and his barns go to somebody else. We are called to abide, not in our stuff, not in our pastors, not even in our churches, but in the presence and spirit of God. And we do that with our hearts. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. This is what I hope God is doing with us. And they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole hearts. That's what I think God's doing here. But I think he wants to give us that. I don't think we're going to go carve it, define it, strategize it, build it, vision it, preach it, sing it. I don't think that. I think he wants to give us that. But in order for him to give us that, we have to go into the place where we are of in great need. The place that often is under the sun with too much sand, too cold at night, too hot during the day, so that I will let go of the things I hold dear and instead reach for survival to my God. Because in that place, what he offers me is not perfect sustenance, is not no longer problems at work, is not a better church. What he offers me is a new heart transformed by him. And he shifts everything. And my hope is we come out of the desert like Jesus comes out of the desert and that there is a new way to see the world and the ministry he's called us into. So practically speaking, this is how we're going to do it. Dallas Willard, this is a great quote, says, full participation in the life of God's kingdom and in the vivid companionship of Christ. That's a beautiful description of what it means to abide with him. The vivid companionship of Christ 
comes to us only through appropriate exercise in the disciplines for life in the spirit. And so this summer, in order to better understand what it means to consistently abide vividly with Christ, we are going to walk through 12 ancient spiritual disciplines. And we're going to dive deep into every single one of them. Spiritual disciplines are devotional and physical activities that engage our hearts and minds to focus on God and draw us to him. And there's a huge list of them uh, that, have, that have survived throughout Christendom that have caused people to have two transformational new heart kind of experiences. Here's the ones we're going to go through over this summer. Meditation, mourning, guidance, fellowship, worship, prayer, service, study, journaling, confession, Sabbath, and celebration. We're going to walk through every single one of these. We're going to walk them out through God's word and a few other source materials that, may, that many may have found helpful throughout the years. That way, if you want to read ahead or do your own times, because again, this is a church service. This is not really the, the all-encompassing church. Church happens out on your back patio in the morning and at the grocery store and with a coworker and with a spouse or, or with a school friend and so on. But if you want to read some material to apply these things to your own life, as well as follow along. There's really three books outside the Bible we're going to follow. The first one is the one we're pulling these quotes from, Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Disciplines. By the way, all these notes are all on the app if, you, if I'm going too fast. All this information is on the app under the notes section. The next one is Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. That's a newer book that uh, people are really enjoying. And then the last one is Dan Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. Willard continues regarding these spiritual disciplines. Every Christian must strive to, to arrive at beliefs about God that faithfully reflect the realities of his or her life experience so that each may know how to live effectively before him in his or her world. That's theology. Now, here's what I know as we wrap up. I know that, that I do a bit of church coaching. I talk with other people, especially people who've planted churches from scratch. And I know that during summer, nothing kills a church faster than uh, Seahawks in the playoffs or sun. Nothing. <laughs> That's why during summer is usually when you do your most provocative series, your most sexy series. Because you want people to be like, oh, the game or, oh, it's so, it's so beautiful out, but I got to see what happens in part three of the series. <laughs> this is not that series. So there's some concern, right? Like, well, what if people just don't want to do spiritual disciplines for summer? Are they all just going to come back in the fall where we launch our provocative series? And I'm like, I don't know. But I'm going to be honest. I'm not doing this series for you. It's not for you. Nor should you attend this series for me or someone else in your family. I'm doing this because God's asked me to do this. And if that means our church as a whole is driven out into the desert... And there's me and 25 people in here. And we're trying to figure out how to pay the bills and keep this thing afloat while we talk about the unbelievable importance of prayer. Then that's exactly what we're going to do. Amen. Because I believe that God wants us to rely on him. And what better way to rely on him than to throw out the books for how to grow a church and just lean into his spiritual disciplines during summer. Therefore, kind of as a church, experiencing a season of weakness. I think if we do that, I believe in my heart that whoever God has called to do this will experience a vivid relationship with him like they never have before. 
And if that happens, then we will have 25 people who are so in love with Jesus in this county, nobody will know what to do with them. <laughs> and I could work with that. Amen. And God could work with that, more importantly. Yeah. I believe that there is something rare happening in this church. I believe it happened because we are willing to pack up and walk out and face shame into the desert. And I don't want to avoid whatever God wants to do while we're there and drag us back into something that's entertaining and fun for the eyes, but does nothing for the heart. I want to be a part of a church that's willing to experience weakness as a community, but none of it will matter unless we're, we are the members of that church willing to experience weakness as individuals, willing to look at those areas in our stories that we, that we know God has highlighted through some work we're doing or even today, willing to say, God, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like I'm clinging to it too much. I'm coping too much with it. God, if I let go of this, what else will fill this void? And I believe God says, I will. I will give to you, but you have to release because God does not share his glory. And so that's where we're going to go. What that means for us as a church come fall, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll shrink down enough to, to have enough parking spaces finally for everybody. <laughs> well, maybe. I think, I think we are in a beautiful place. I think we're in a beautiful place to really mess this up bad unless we pray and understand who our God is. I think there's a big responsibility in this room to, to, to support the anointing and the calling that God has put upon this movement. And I wanna make sure I'm out of the way and you're out of the way enough that God is the only one driving the tempo and the pace and the topics. And so we're gonna pull all the way back. That's what the stage is about. It's all simple. It's all just about him. And I think that'll be more than enough. Amen? Amen. Please stand. We'll close in prayer. God, only you can orchestrate. Only you can organize. Only you can build. The church that you want to exist in this city. God, you've asked us to, to play a part tonight. I confess that I have avoided um, the weaker parts of my story in order to leverage the strengths and the gifts you've given me. And yet, Lord, I can feel within my own heart areas that are untouched, unsurrendered, unyielded, areas that I am still holding on to because of my own fear. And so, Lord, I ask that, uh, that in this room or whoever's watching, that 
that, that there would be that same self-reflection, that we would all see that there is a process to transforming into the people you've called us to be, and it always starts with weakness. And so, Lord, some of us, we're close to that place. We know that place. We're living in that place. May you shore us up, God, that you're coming, that you're there, that you're holding fast. Some others, Lord, we are so bound up in our own plans and strategies, it's going to take a lot more than just this simple sermon to break them open. And so, God, I pray that you would move quickly into their lives, awakening them to the so much more of your presence than the thing that they're relying on for identity, for value and purpose. I ask, Lord, that there would be an awakening within our small church, within every home, within uh, every, every quiet time and Bible reading and worship song, that there would be something more, God, beyond just Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes, that this would become real and authentic and more, that hearts, God, would be brought back to wholeness through their weakness, and your strength. May you be glorified by whatever happens next. We lift it all to you and you alone in great obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. God bless. Uh, I'll see you next week.